And if you would open your copy of the scriptures to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3 verses 19 through 25. This is the Word of God. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under under sin, so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were, held, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, as we have opened and read your scriptures, and now as I open uh, it in the hearing of your people, I pray for your help, and I ask, Father, that you would help me to uh, speak your word accurately. And I pray that you would open all the, the ears and the hearts of your people to receive it by faith, as it is the word of God. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been to Uganda twice, uh, once in 1989 and then again in 1990, or rather 1990 and then again in 1991. And so I like using illustrations from Uganda because everything was so different uh, that it gave me um, many opportunities to see things from a very different perspective. And so uh, I've got another story from Uganda. Uh, this was my first trip to Uganda. We were up in the northern part of the country in a town called Soroti. And we were holding a preaching conference there in conjunction with the Church of Uganda, which was Anglican. And we were meeting on the grounds of an Anglican church, and it was a diocese, so they had a large um, a large area that was gated in. In fact, it was larger than the 10 acres we have here um, for our property. And we were meeting in a room that would hold normally 500 people. But I am sure that there were at least 900 people in this room. All the chairs were filled with people. All the aisles, the the, the, the um, the floor in front of the chairs were filled with people uh, sitting on the floor. All the way around the walls were two and three deep of people. And outside of every window, people were gathered at every window uh, to uh, hear the preaching of the Word of God. Dr. Krabendam was preaching, but he actually was not the highlight uh, of the evening 
there was a gentleman named James Williams, and he's probably the best preacher I have ever heard. Uh, he was going to be preaching after Dr. Krabendam. But as Dr. Krabendam was finishing, there was no J.D. We called him J.D., J.D. Williams. And so Dr. Krabendam, in the middle of his sermon, turned around to me and he said, Go find J.D. So I left with one of the hosts and we went out wandering the grounds looking for J.D. Finally we came to the guest house in which he was um, staying and we saw him. He was sitting on the couch, completely dejected, his uh, face in his hands, and uh, we knew something was wrong. In Uganda, especially, and this we were there only two and a half years after a 30-year um, war, uh, uh, war for revolutionary war. Revolution, civil war. Sorry, uh, after a 30-year civil war had been going on, so anything not nailed down was taken. Uh, when you went to someone's house that had a little bit of money, they would have a wall around their house, and they would have broken shards of glass uh, embedded in the mortar on top of the walls. Uh, none of the windows had glass in them, but they all had bars over the windows. All the doors in the house uh, were gated. And so um, when we went to uh, find J.D., uh, he had been in, back in the back in his bedroom getting ready. He was so excited to preach. He was back there kind of singing to himself, and he did not hear that the guard had come around and had locked the gate. And so he did not realize he had been locked in. And then after the, the preaching started, everybody came to the meeting room. He had been yelling out the windows, but no one could hear him. And uh, as I said before, he was completely dejected. The reason I tell this story is because here in our text, the Bible says that our entire existence is a prison house of sin. And just like J.D., you may be, if you are still in Christ Jesus, or rather, if you are not in Christ, if um, you are uh, still uh, in your sins, then you are living in a prison house of sin. You may not see, you may not recognize that you're locked in um, this existence, this jail of sin. But uh, you truly are. And the Apostle Paul is saying that the law is the jailer. That the law was added to multiply our sins to show us that we are sinners. And even if you don't recognize it, as I just said, even if you don't want to believe it, if you are not in Christ, your entire existence is an existence of captivity. Many people won't come to Christ because they want their freedom. But if you were running from Christ because you want your freedom, your freedom is actually a slavery. 
you're chasing after freedom is really a chasing after the wind because once you catch that elusive freedom or catch that thing you, you so earnestly sought, it quickly evaporates away and it leaves you emptier than before. And this is the nature of your captivity in the prison house of sin. He's saying, but where are the bars on my cell? Well, you can't see those bars. You can't see the jail cell. Because it is your heart that is held captive. The prison cell is an unseen dungeon that resides deepest in your soul. It resides down in your desires, down in your heart, the control center of your soul. What I'm talking about here is the level of the motives. I'm talking about the level of the desires. Remember how we read a few minutes ago in the uh, responsive reading? Jesus said that the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. Or out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whatever comes out of a person is what defiles him. It is from within From out of the heart, Jesus says, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, uh, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, uh, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things, Jesus says, all these evil things come from within. So I'm talking here about the motives. I'm talking here about the desires from which spring forth our words, our actions. The heart is always the root of our actions. We don't act out of accord with the nature of our heart. And the problem is, we saw it a couple of weeks ago, the human heart is hopelessly deceitful. I want you to uh, look at your bulletin, uh, the outline on your bulletin. Normally I don't say that you need to look at it, but rather if you want to look at it. But I've printed out uh, Jeremiah 17, verses 5 through 10, since that can be a passage that uh, might be unfamiliar to you. I went ahead and printed it in the bulletin so that you would have it. And what we have here in this passage is we have two trees. We have one tree that's really more like a a tumbleweed. It's a a bramble uh, in the desert. It's just a, a bush in a dry land. It has really no fruit and no leaves on it. And then we have another tree that is healthy, that is well watered, that has bountiful fruit. And so in Jeremiah 17 it says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see 
and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness and in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So you see the two trees here. And what's interesting is the sun in its great heat is beating down upon both of these trees. It's not just beating down on this shrub in the desert. It's beating down upon both of these. In fact, it says that... um, about the the tree planted by the water, that its leaves remain green and it's not anxious in the year of drought and does not cease to bear fruit. We can think of the sun or the heat beating down upon these two trees as circumstances in our lives. And we are... It doesn't matter... Where we are, we all have circumstances um, and, and hardships and sufferings, heats, if you will, that comes down and beats down upon our lives, whether we are Christians or non-Christians. Suffering or heat comes upon us. But even though it might be the very same circumstances... One person, when the heat comes beating down, curses the Lord. And another person, under the exact same circumstances, praises and worships the Lord. How can this be? Well, the difference is not the type of shrub or the type of tree. The difference is what's happening underneath below the surface, happening down at the level of the roots. Basically what's happening here in Jeremiah 17 is God is using this illustration to illustrate two different hearts. One heart that trusts in man and one heart that trusts in the Lord. And so this, uh, so we see in verse uh, 5, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. And then in verse 7, we see the one, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. And he's talking here about this man's trust is like roots. And the roots are the heart that trusts in the Lord. But it's what I, what I found when I was looking at this passage. It's not the roots that make the difference. The shrub had roots as well. What makes the difference is that these roots are well watered in the one who trusts in the Lord. So the roots are not the ultimate difference maker. The roots are abundantly well watered. And I think what God is saying here is this water that is watering the roots is a picture of the Holy Spirit. 
And then he says something surprising. It's a verse that we, uh, we all know. It's verse 9. And he's not talking about this shrub in the desert. He is talking about all hearts in general. He's talking about all the roots of all the trees. He makes no distinction. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then he says, and this is rather um, a rather amazing statement. I, the Lord, search the heart. Well, God, if my heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, I don't know if I want you to search it. But God says, I search the heart, I test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Wouldn't that be horrible? God is going to test our hearts, and He's going to test our hearts by looking at the actions or the fruit that is produced. There's good news and there's bad news. The good news is that the heart that is watered, that is well watered by the Holy Spirit, that heart produces fruit. It fruit, produces the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, uh, self-control, and those, those types of things. So all of our good things that we do are produced ultimately by the Holy Spirit. Thus they're called the fruits of the Spirit. But the heart that is not well watered by the Spirit, that is not empowered by the Spirit, is like this shrub that is out in the desert that produces no fruit. I want to use an illustration to get to the heart of the matter. Let's say that you have mostly overcome lying in your life, and that's quite an accomplishment. Well, God is not going to be simply satisfied with looking outwardly and seeing whether you stopped lying or not. Uh, or He's going to look deeper than that. You know, you can take a liar and you can cut his tongue out, but he is still going to be a liar. He is still going to be a liar until in his heart he becomes an honest person. And so God's going to test your heart. He's going to find out why it is that you're not lying. Is it because your heart is being empowered by the Holy Spirit and love for God? Or is it something else? And there are moralistic reasons that people stop lying. For instance, fear. You may be so worried that God's punishing you, will punish you for your lying. Or, miss, or you might miss His blessing if you lie. And so that is a moralistic motive, the motive of fear or pride. Well, good Christians don't lie, and I want to be thought of as a good Christian. So I'm not going to lie. I'm going to control my tongue. Well, what's missing in this equation? There's nothing about Jesus in these equations. It bypasses Jesus. And that is what we, as Christians, are so given to doing. We're, we're like the Pharisees in the Old Testament. We're recovering Pharisees, if you will. 
we find a way to produce moral behavior that is empowered by self-interest rather than by Christ. You've got a, a beautiful example um, of, of self-interest motivating actions. I thought Billy did a great job. You know, the, I am being good and I'm giving away my candy because I can get ten more. Where's Christ in that equation? What the Apostle Paul is doing, and the reason I'm mentioning this, is because the Apostle Paul is building a case for justification by faith apart from works. He is saying justification by faith is absolutely necessary. And so I am building on that argument, and I want to say that even at our best, even our best behavior... Oftentimes, our motives are deceptively twisted and self-centered. When we are acting our best, God, as it says in Jeremiah 17, searches the heart and tests the mind. He looks beyond our actions. He looks to our motives. Maybe you're saying to yourself, Well, if I'm so bad, then I can't even be sure that I'm pleasing God when I'm being obedient outwardly. Then why should I even try to be holy? The good news is, the root of holiness begins by embracing Jesus Christ as a hopeless sinner and drawing from Him those life-giving waters of life that the Holy Spirit supplies as um, as we talked about here in the two trees illustration. The root of holiness begins with saying, I can't, but Jesus, you can, and embracing Him and relying on Him for the power and the ability to obey Him. Look at verse 23. This is what I'm trying to get at. He says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned. And then look at this word, until the coming of faith would be revealed. He's saying we were imprisoned, we were held captive by the law, until, until what? Until we are made free. That's what the Apostle Paul is wanting us to see. We don't have to live imprisoned, defeated lives. Rather, in Christ, there's freedom. So look down at the next chapter, verse 4. Galatians 4.4 But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You were held captive, but in Christ He is setting you free, and you are free to be a child of God. Or look at chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom, Paul says, that Christ has set us free. Therefore stand firm and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Or look down in verse 13 in chapter 5. 
For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Look at verse 16 in chapter 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Our holiness, our obedience, begins with embracing Christ as sinners, and then relying on the Holy Spirit to empower us to live in the freedom of loving God and loving our neighbor. The whole law is summed up in the one word, love. And we don't have it in us naturally. And so we take shortcuts around Jesus to find other motives, find other ways. But the only way into holiness is straight through Jesus. We embrace Him and His Spirit empowers us to live new lives. The passage goes on in verses 23 through 25. It says, um, We were held captive until the coming of the faith would be revealed. So then the law is our guardian. Literally in the Greek is our pedagogos. Uh, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now through now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. What it's saying, what the Apostle Paul is saying is, we are so wicked in our hearts that we need the law to imprison us, to save us from ourselves. In other words... Um, we would, without the law, we would live such unrestrained lives that we would be hindered in coming to Christ. I think that's why the gospel spread so quickly here in America. There was a strong sense of the rule of law. There was a strong sense of order. And so, um, the gospel spread quickly in our country. But as we become more lawless, as we become less uh, engaged in the rule of law, then the gospel, uh, or more people become hardened to the gospel. I remember when the, the uh, communism fell in Russia. And I was so expecting the gospel to rush in. I think many um, American Christians were expecting that the gospel would take root and transform Russia. But they were so, um, there was so much lawlessness that I don't think the gospel really ever took root. You know, we raise our children as parents with structure, with order, with rules. Not because the structure and order and rules will save them. But I think that it gives them the opportunity to have a more receptive hearing of the gospel. We train our children to listen in church in order that they might be able to listen to the gospel in church. And so Paul is saying here in verses 24 and 25 that the law is our guardian to hold us, to keep us from being so absolutely lawless 
as we otherwise would have been until Christ came and uh, redeemed us and brought us from our captivity into the freedom that we have in Christ. As Christians, we still live according to the law. But it's our joy to obey it. Uh, as we live in Christ rather than a means to self-justification. And so to conclude, in Christ, by the power of His indwelling Spirit, we are free from the prison house of sin and its consequent lawlessness. God is calling you to be free. True freedom comes from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit uses... His Word to change us, to transform us. He works in our lives as we read His Word. So the Word of God is not an end in itself, but rather it's a means of fellowshipping with God. In other words, we read the Scriptures not simply to know the Scriptures. It's wonderful to know the Scriptures. It's the wisdom of God. But as we read it, God reveals Himself to us. God, we see Jesus each day and we are reminded of His great love for us. And so that's why I want to always urge you, if you're Bible reading, or rather if you're not reading your Bible, then your freedom and your fellowship with your fellowship with God is hindered, therefore your freedom is hindered, your your obedience is hindered. And so take take the scripture, chew on it, read it, um, take notes, make applications to yourself, pray about what you read in the scriptures. Because it is then that you will experience the freedom and the joy that is ours in Jesus Christ as we are children of God. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, I'm reminded of that passage in Hebrews chapter 12 where it says that um, we are to run the race and cast off everything that hinders all the sin that entangles and we are to consider Him to consider Jesus, to focus on Him who loved us. And that is when we have the freedom. God, I pray that You would help us to keep our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that You would help us to avoid those uh, traps of self-righteousness that we fall into when we try to circumvent Jesus in order to take a shortcut through obedience. God, I ask that you would make us holy, but empower us by your Spirit, because that is the only true holiness. All else is not only false, but is an affront to your mercy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.